Welcome to Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience, a podcast series by FES in Asia. Today's podcast will focus on the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, its continuing relevance and the economic security and strategic challenges confronting it in a dynamic region. Has ASEAN also been a victim of the COVID-19-induced skepticism about international organizations and the multilateral order? What is ASEAN's agenda for dealing with the economic and health challenges thrown up by the pandemic? How will ASEAN balance ties between China and the US? To explore all these critical themes, we have with us today Leo Chin Tong. He is the former Deputy Defence Minister of Malaysia and currently is a senator in the Upper House of Malaysia's Parliament. He has also served two terms as a Member of Parliament. He is a member of the Democratic Action Party's Central Executive Committee, serving as the National Political Education Director. He has also been the Chairman of Research for Social Advancement, a Kuala Lumpur-based think tank since 2012. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia. I'm Dinkim Silo, and we are excited to have with us Mr. Liu Chintong. Chintong, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. The pandemic has led to many questions about the relevance of multilateral organizations in general. The European Union uh, has not covered itself in glory. Closer home, SARC has not really pushed the needle the United Nations and the World Health Organization have themselves been criticized from many quarters too. Given such a possibly bleak outlook for multilateralism, what has been the general perception for ASEAN's relevance and effectiveness during this time? I think uh, multilateralism is most needed uh, in a global crisis. Uh, perhaps we need to repair and uh, reinvent the institutions we have. Uh, for instance, United Nations may have to accommodate uh, the uh, more rising power in at the Security Council level. But the point is that this is not the time to say no to multilateralism. And coming close to home, ASEAN needs to reinvent itself. Uh, it has been there for more than 50 years. It is time to strengthen the Secretariat. I think there's a need to strengthen the Secretariat. There's also uh, the need for richer nations in ASEAN to think about what they can do for uh, poorer nations in ASEAN. And I think there's also a need to bridge the gap between the island uh, or the, the uh, what they call the maritime Southeast Asia and the continental Southeast Asia uh, states and to actually build a closer economy and also closer uh, political and security structure in order for, for ASEAN states to deal with the challenges in the years to come. And do you think there is much room for ASEAN to work with its bro broader Asian uh, counterparts as well as its global partners? Yeah, I think there are rooms uh, for ASEAN states and for ASEAN itself um, to work with other partners. Uh, it is important for the regional partners, for, for the partners not to see Southeast Asia just as a theater of conflict between great powers, but to actually understand that each of the nation, including the smaller ones, for instance, uh, Laos and Cambodia, uh, 
has its own agencies. And it is important it is really important for great powers not to see Southeast Asia as a theater of conflict between China and US. Uh, and of course, ASEAN states uh, needs to assert itself, uh, needs to display and also uh, shows that it can work together. Uh, it can come up with something coherent and uh, can produce uh, benefits for its people in the region. You have touched on an important point, uh, the China factor, and one cannot ignore this in the midst of the pandemic. While there has been quite a bit of global outrage against China that we are seeing in different quarters, there seems to be varying views amongst ASEAN nations. So how do you see uh, this pandemic has impacted China-ASEAN relations? I think, uh, first of all, China would not go away geographically. For the next 500 years, uh, we will have to live with China uh, as our as a giant in our region, geographically. So uh, for ASEAN to take a very hostile position may not necessarily be productive. Uh, but of course, at the same time, uh, ASEAN being a collection of uh, small states uh, is trying as much as possible to balance the challenges. I think most ASEAN states would accept the United States as a residence power. I think that is a, a, an important basis to start. But at the same time, uh, we do not want the United States to, to, uh, to dominate uh, or, or overly uh, dominant in the sense that we, we would like to see rooms to accommodate the rise of China. And we would also hope that uh, by doing so, we can help China to be a benign great power rather than, rather than a hostile great power to the region and also a threat to the world. That is not an easy balance. That is really not an easy balance. But it's important not to fall for propaganda of both sides. Uh, they are uh, con- what they call a consensus be- being built up uh, in the West over the over the last two, three, four years that China is is a is a, a threat to the world. But at the same time, of course, the right wing or the more hostile uh, elements in in China is also building up a scenario where confrontation. Is inevitable. I think we reject both both uh, extreme views. Uh, we we will have to find a middle ground for both sides, uh, in order in order that we will not be squeezed. In order for ASEAN to to have space, uh, is that uh, we will not be made to choose, because if ASEAN states are eventually made to choose between China and the United States, I think that doesn't serve the region and it is. Uh, Uh, the world will suffer losses because of that. Well, you have indeed brought out the other elephant in the room and (laughs) other leaders leaders have also mentioned how we do not want to get trapped by this rivalry, right? Um, And you mentioned about ASEAN playing this balancing role. Are you able to share a little bit about uh, some of the institutional ways in which it is uh, doing this? and also uh, or, or non-institutional ways as well? I think ASEAN um, likes to say that it's in the driver's seat, but sometimes drivers are just uh, drivers are just driver. The, the boss is at the back, sitting at the back. Uh, but 
the point is ASEAN has been able to uh, to be a platform for various uh, great power to dialogue uh, in, in ASEAN's uh, various, uh, what they call, uh, dialogue institutions. I think that alone provides an opportunity, a rare opportunity for, for various power to engage among themselves. Uh, they may not have that many forums uh, to, to meet each other. And ASEAN provided that particular forums for, for some of these powers to meet. Uh, I think that is the institutions that uh, ASEAN has already built up and it should be further developed uh, and in order to in order to um, to provide for for space for dialogue. Now beyond that, I think we, we, we really need a stronger ASEAN secretariat uh, in order to in order to be able to play a larger game uh, given the challenges that we are facing. But at the same time, I, I also sense that in, in recent in but in the last two or three years, increasingly there 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 are convergence uh, among ASEAN states. For instance, uh, at one point Singapore was seen as uh, very close to the Obama White House, but increasingly, if you follow the speeches and writing of uh, Prime Minister Li Xianlong, uh, it is clear that uh, what Li Xianlong is saying in the last two years has been the Malaysian position for a while, which is uh, we do not want to choose side and uh, we, we, we would like both sides to uh, maintain, or we would like to maintain almost equal distance to, to both sides. I also sense that uh, even in places like Cambodia, which is considered uh, very close to China, among its people, there are also unhappiness towards Chinese investment, for instance, and the state will have to balance. Even the Cambodian states, uh, which is seen as very close to China, would at times has to balance uh, public opinion or public adverse public opinion towards China. So I think we are in a situation where uh, there, there are rooms for ASEAN to converge on something that uh, that we, we we can proudly say or proudly tells the world that uh, we, we do not want both sides to go overboard, and we would like to see. Uh, ASEAN being uh, being impertwined, and uh, we do not want to be seen as siding one side uh, too overtly. Well, this conversation is happening at the time when it has become imminent that there will be a change of guard at the White House under the Joe Biden presidency. Uh, what has been uh, the views from the region, especially the internal discussions within ASEAN regarding uh, its position in the role of the US in the Pacific? I think with uh, with Biden in the White House, uh, we, we do not expect major change in the trajectory as far as US-China uh, great power competition is concerned. Uh, but I would assume that under Biden, the issues will be unpacked in the sense that uh, China and US perhaps will cooperate a lot more as far as climate change is concerned uh, and may have a more... Uh, productive and conducive uh, corporations as far as trade is concerned. Um, even if there is a trade war of sort, um, it would not be an outright war and it will be a lot more measured. But as far as uh, military competitions, uh, you, I, think, I think that it is not easy to turn away from what has the trajectory that has already been set. Uh, but I would expect the Biden White House 
to be a lot more measured and stable. And hope, hopefully that will actually tone down the temperature and avoid accident. I think what we are worried in the region, for instance, uh, is accident in places like South China Sea. Because in the Northeast Asia, uh, say for example, Japan, Taiwan, or South Korea, even they are a lot more closer than uh, to the United States than many of the ASEAN states. But in those places, uh, they will be very careful not to provoke China because anything happened, any accident happened, it can be an outright war. And therefore, Japan, Taiwan, and uh, South Korea will be extremely careful in managing their re relationship with China. Uh, even if there's a, even uh, during Trump's period of time at the White House. But in South China Sea, there is no, no middle power that is running the show in the region. There's no Japan, there's no, uh, uh, no, no, no other middle power that is strong enough to say no to either side. There's no uh, uh, military capability to deny uh, either side. And that, that is where this uh, idea that uh, we, we are worried that uh, this could be the Balkan of uh, 1914. Where, where powers, great powers, walk in, sleepwalking into a, a crisis, sleepwalking into a war, uh, which is why a safe pair of hands at the White House is so important, uh, so that we avoid accident. Speaking of the Balkan, where do you see Europe in this theater? I think Europe will have to engage uh, the world in a more active way. It cannot outsource foreign policy to the United States or to NATO. Uh, Europe will have to play a role itself. Uh, Europe will have to engage uh, both in the what they call uh, uh, in Central Asia and other parts of of the world, but also in maritime Asia. Uh, I think the the role of Europe, uh, the engagement uh, will have to intensify. Uh, after all, this is a region in which trade is still very important and increasingly more important to Europe. Uh, Europe must have a new new way of seeing the region and without outsourcing foreign policy uh, to the United States or NATO. Coming back to ASEAN and the pandemic, there was an initial flurry of ASEAN activity and an effort to respond collectively to this crisis. To what extent has the regional approach been the reason for ensuring that Southeast Asia has fared somewhat better as, as far as containing the virus uh, is concerned? Or should the credit go more to individual countries acting at the national level? Um, I, I would think that uh, this crisis is a test of national capability throughout the world. Uh, even in Europe, Germany fare much better compared to, say, Italy and uh, other states. So uh, healthcare is still very much uh, the domain of, uh, of a national government. And perhaps that applies to Southeast Asia, Southeast Asian states as well. Uh, so Singapore had a period of time which uh, it did not do very well uh, because of uh, the, the spread of the, of COVID, of the infections uh, among foreign workers among migrant workers. 
and uh, subsequent and that was a period of time when Malaysia was doing really well. Uh, but subsequently, we are now having our uh, what they call uh, crazy numbers uh, spread, uh, and and Singapore is doing a lot more better at this moment. But whatever it is, I think moving forward. Uh, in terms of vaccine, uh, the deployment of vaccine, in terms of reopening our economy and whether we can build back better uh, for the region, I think that will require a lot more regional cooperation. In this crisis, it's quite clear that uh, the, the weaker communities in, in all our states, for instance, the migrant workers, prisoners, uh, and and uh, other vulnerable com communities, they suffer disproportionately as far as uh, COVID-19 spread is concerned. How do we build back our society better? Can we actually uh, deal with the questions of providing decent housing for migrant workers? How do we ensure that um, each of our society become more prosperous so that we have less people having to seek uh, employment overseas to be cheap labor? And if they were overseas as cheap labor, how, how do we ensure that they are treated fairly and they are treated decently? I think these are challenges because uh, much as Malaysia is a middle-income country, we have 500,000 Malaysians working as cheap labor in Singapore. Uh, we have, I mean, and Philippines has, uh, has uh, migrant workers elsewhere. Uh, Indonesia has migrant workers in Malaysia, uh, in Singapore. Uh, Myanmar, Myanmar workers are working in Thailand. So how do we actually come up with a different way of dealing with migrant workers? And how do we actually ensure that uh, we treat each other's uh, citizens fairly and decently? Uh, that I think is something that we will have to deal with and you will have long-term consequences and we have to start thinking of how to build back better. And do you foresee any specific uh, ways or approach in which uh, ASEAN could work collectively on this particular aspect? Uh, are there any specific sectors that could possibly be earmarked for greater by support by ASEAN collectively in this uh, dealing with the social and economic aspect of the fallout, which is likely to be for a long time to come? I think we... we... Apart from hoping that uh, there will be investor from from outside, for instance, China, or say uh, other other uh, states to invest into the region, uh, as far as infrastructure is concerned, I think ASEAN may have to start thinking about how to package uh, useful infrastructure for the region, uh, so that we will call develop uh, those the richer state help the less uh, developed states to package financial packages uh, in investing in infrastructure, particular green, particularly green infrastructure for the years to come. Uh, there is a huge space to develop uh, as far as green infrastructure, as far as uh, <coughs> building better healthcare system for the region. And all this will require skill, required talent, will require uh, uh, skilled workers. Now, one of the major challenge for the region is that we have, for the last 50, 50 years, we have been uh, exporting to the United States. Our economic model has been heavily dependent on exporting 
goods and services to the United States and to a lesser extent to Europe. Now, whether that can be a sustainable model for the next 50 years, I, I have my doubts. Um, if the United States is no longer having such a huge middle class compared to, say, before the global financial crisis, uh, and, and with the COVID crisis, uh, the, the middle class in the United States has been depleted further. Uh, are we able to continue to export to the United States and seeing the United States as the final destination of export? I, I have my doubts. Now, that will require us to look at new markets, but that will also require us to think about uh, how to create employment that is not necessarily... Uh, based on the old model. The old model was essentially suppressing wages in order to export to the US and, uh, and to a lesser extent Europe. But how do we actually enrich our own workers so that they become consumer, so that they can, they can live a decent life with decent wage? And how do we do that, not just nationally, but regionally, uh, so that Malaysian workers uh, do not have to think of, of uh, working as cheap labor in Singapore, uh, and and likewise, Indonesia Indonesia will have or Philippines will will grow uh, in a manner that its workers doesn't have to cons- doesn't have to leave the country to work as cheap labor cheap migrant labor, and the na- their own economy will grow without having to I mean grow organically in the region, uh, and not necessarily dependent on just investment from uh, uh, from China or from United States. I think those are challenges that uh, that we will have to deal with. It's not easy. Uh, we really have to rethink the way we see supply chain, the way we see uh, healthcare, the way we see, uh, uh, for example, our societies will also grow uh, to become uh, an, an aging society very soon. But how do we deal with it? Uh, how do we deal with um, getting women into the workforce uh, in the years to come? Uh, all this will require a lot of learning from each other, and it will also require us to uh, think through how we want to run our societies uh, for the years and decades to come. And given these uh, political developments in the region, uh, as we have mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, how do you feel that the focus on security, uh, but now with the pandemic putting a focus on non-traditional security uh, as well, how, how, how does this change the mechanisms that's, that's in place? And I'm aware that the defense uh, ministries have also uh, been mandated in certain ways to come up with, uh, with, with some mechanisms internally to look at these challenges. Uh, I am no longer in the government. Uh, we we were ousted uh, from from the government in February, uh, but I I think uh, <laughs> we during our our term in office uh, we we produced the first Malaysian defense white paper, uh, and and in the defense white paper our projection or we 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 are seeing this as uh, the role of Malaysia uh, to to play. The, the linchpin role between Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean, uh, but not necessarily adopting the Indo-Pacific uh, framework. So we are we are seeing ourselves uh, as as uh, as a middle an aspiring middle power. We are hoping that uh, we can work with regional regional partners uh, in order to in order to 
to think through and uh, to work out a new way of uh, handling regional challenges. I think it is very important to link both economy and security and to link economy and security. For instance, uh, if South, Southern Philippines is a lot more prosperous, uh, then the challenge of uh, migrants in Sabah will be a lot less. It's an economic question as much as a security issue. And I, I think that that is something that we will have to bear in mind. Uh, likewise, the challenges of uh, Southern Thailand uh, and some other places will require a, a national government that is not seeing Islam as a challenge. Uh, so, so I think these are these are factors where uh, we will need progressive government everywhere in the region to work with each other to find ways to deal with economic and security challenges in a, in a more humane and progressive manner uh, without being too much tainted by uh, or tinted by by uh, race or religion and that, that i think is not an easy job <laughs> given the background of the region uh, but but it's important to 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 have hope it's important to have hope it's important to uh, to to be hopeful and uh, to be prepared to to strike out a different path from what we have experienced previously. I just want to briefly touch on this. I think what we are facing now, uh, the COVID crisis in, in 2020, perhaps is the end of an era and hopefully a, the beginning of, of a better, better era to come. In the sense that uh, the current international structure, the current multilater multilateral institutions were very much the legacy of World War II. So we are actually operating in uh, within the framework uh, set out at the end of World War II, and that has been 75 years. The peace that we have now in the region, and also the second phase of ASEAN, which was uh, enlarged in the 90s, in the 1990s, was the result of the end of the Cold War uh, with the fall of Berlin War, and subsequently, uh, the the dismantling of uh, Soviet Union, and that has been thirty years. So we are now coming to a, a period which I think uh, it's time for us to to think about what's next. What would be the the order for the next twenty years or thirty years, and it, and we will have to build that order, uh, which I think must uh, incorporate China's ambitions. Uh, and 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 accommodate accommodate and incorpor uh, incorporate China's ambitions, but also incorporating and accommodating uh, the the for example ASEAN states as middle power. And at the same time, domestically, we will have to enrich our citizens because we can no longer depend on uh, an export led economy that depends heavily on foreign direct investment, and also suppressions of domestic wages. That model is hardly going to work in the years to come. And it has been proven that uh, it, it has, uh, it's, it's, uh, what they call utility has diminished, particularly during the COVID crisis. So we will have to build a system in which our citizens will live a better life, a more decent life. And instead of... Uh, uh, repeating the, the, the triangle or pyramid structure in our society, 
we will have to think of a, a diamond-shaped society where the middle class is bigger and middle class, uh, well, we will still have rich people, we will still have poor people, but we will have to con construct a society where the middle is bigger than both the richer, the, the top and the bottom. Thanks, Chintong. That's a great summary of ASEAN, multilateralism, COVID, and the challenges for the region. You have highlighted both the immediate challenges, but also looking at further out in the decades to come, crystal gazing type of perspective from Southeast Asia. It has been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. This was Liu Chin Tong, a senator in Malaysia's upper house of the parliament and a former deputy defense minister. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. This podcast was brought to you by FES in Asia. Interview by Din Kim Silo, research by Ariman Batnagar, directed by Mirko Gunter and produced by Andovar. Please make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it, and don't forget to visit our website, fes-asia.org, for regular updates on freedom, justice, and solidarity in Asia. Mm -hmm.